Welcome to the Recruitment Mentors Podcast. My name is Hisham Azuz. Today, I'm really excited to be joined by Ryan Cleland Bogle, who is the founder of Tempting Ventures. Between 2002 to 2009, Ryan founded and co-founded four recruitment brands across different sectors and locations, which were finance, healthcare and rhetoric, which all operated across London, New York, Hong Kong and Ireland. By 2013, he'd successfully exited all of these brands. And since then, Ryan's mission has been very focused on supporting, mentoring, and investing in successful recruitment entrepreneurs. He initially started this journey as the CEO of Recruitment Entrepreneur in 2014. But then after this, in 2017, Ryan launched Tempting Ventures, which now actively invests in early stage recruitment businesses in exciting sectors in the UK and US. They currently have six different recruitment brands within their portfolio, which they're looking to grow, which all operate in different sectors and locations. Ryan, thank you for joining me on the podcast. Good to be here. (laughs) So uh, as I always like to start this podcast is the million pound question, but I'm going to change it slightly for you. So in your opinion, what characteristics and traits do you think make up a highly successful recruitment entrepreneur? Let's start there. I think in some ways it's pretty similar to what makes someone a really successful and sustainably successful recruiter. As a starting point, I think, you know, what gives you a better chance of being a successful recruiter or entrepreneur's market? So whether I think some people get there by luck, some people by good good judgment. Um, I think we've got there initially by luck and then perhaps later by good judgment, once we probably understood how important it was. But fundamentally, you know, if you're in a good market and you, you know, have a have a tailwind, the common threads that I've seen with sort of, you know, successful recruitment entrepreneurs is their ability to, you know, attract, train and retain talent. And mm. you know, that's the rule, which is should probably will never change for you as the CEO of a business. So, you know, if you can't have a magnetic or attractive vision for people to join you, if you can't give them the training and personal development that you know, give them best chance of success. And you can't create a pathway to keep them in your business. You know, you, you, you're probably going to shelf life. So, you know, those those things, I think, are the, the common threads that people do very well, get right market, attract, train, and retain repeatedly. And that, you know, repetition is probably the hardest challenge that recruitment founders have, you know, at the start when you're bringing people into a business and, you know, maybe two of you, maybe three of you, five of you, you know, it's an opportunity to come and sit with you, learn from you, you know, bastardize what you're doing, get it to work from you, you know, get lots of personal attention, whatever it may be. And all your language is in the future. Mm. So, you know, we're going to be, we're going to do, it's all going to happen. And you can't really question any of that. As you grow, a lot more of your language is present. Some of it becomes past. You know, it's great that you say you're going to do this, but you've been going six years and there's three of you, you know, so. Yeah, I love that. Want, yeah. So I guess like that journey of a CEO and how they attract, train, retain people, how forward thinking, uh, entrepreneurs are around that and how a, how much they're able to put in repeatable processes matters. It's a very, very different journey to go from zero to 10, to 10 to 30, to 30 to 100, to 100 to 300. You know, the processes that you need to have in place and what you need to value as an entrepreneur needs, needs to change along the way. So if everything you do is driven by personality, you need to hear it, see it, feel it, touch it in order to understand how it's working, that will that will slow you down. At some point, you'll probably trip over. If everything you're doing is actually how do we repeat this to give people a platform, which is worth more to them than my competitors, you know, then you've probably got quite a good chance of success. So, 
you know, that can be L&D, that can be, you know, the marketing and being able to demonstrate, you know, X amount of our revenue came from marketing, which you don't personally need to do next year. It can be mm. X amount of our revenue came from data we already have in our CRM and own, which you don't need to personally do. It's already there. So, you know, we have something which is off value to people joining the business. And your aim should be to continually build that value to make it a more attractive proposition for people to join you. And that part of that's obviously development pathways and giving people opportunity. But the entrepreneurs that are really focused on that, I think tend to do pretty well if they're in a good market. And, you know, that is, it's a pretty common thread between each business. You get your operating model right. Is it scalable? Is it buildable? I think a lot of people struggle with that because it's quite a different role and you need to constantly be evolving what you prioritize, what your focus is along the way. And, you know, I think quite often, culturally, CEOs find it quite hard to get out of that liked mode into respected mode, you know, the two mm. people, but, you know, the people that do that well tend to be the people that flourish. I love that. So much, so much in there. I really like that simple, like, I guess, cornerstones of like attract, retain. I, I really, I really like that. It's super simple. Yeah. So, so basically, as I was just saying to you before, you've been in the recruitment industry for some time now, and typically we'd go into, yeah, when you started your own business, these sorts of things. But I really want to try and maximize this time for people listening and really go into this journey that you experienced, yeah, come by 2013 that a lot of aspiring recruitment entrepreneurs visualize, maybe even think about, or maybe even be the reason why they start their own recruitment business because they think one day they'll be able to exit that business. So I guess where, where I want to start is just it's just going straight to that point of like by 2013, you'd exited a number of brands that you was involved with, started or co-founded. And I think, yeah, a lot of people in the industry may never even achieve or experience one exit, but you experienced multiple. So let's just start there. How the hell did you achieve that? Different businesses, different results, really. Um, I think with the initial brand that we found in Carrington Fox, that was a, a very good market in the sort of first five years that we were building the business and you know it was pre-LinkedIn where you could leverage other people's data so you know you really had to build your own the data that we amassed by staying in very tight talent pools became very valuable very quickly and the uh, average fee the fee you know average fee of the market that we were in rose as the business was growing so you know, we had a sort of perfect storm of first mover advantage and a really exciting market for five years, which enabled us to get to, you know, a level of scale in the business and relationships with clients for people, processes, L&D, finance, etc. So, you know, we had a very difficult time in 2009 to 2012, but we, we had a good enough infrastructure and good enough legacy relationships with, you know, clients, people that, you know, we were able to, 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 to ride that and, and get out of the other side as the market came back. So I think, you know, we did a lot of our learning during that period. We got a lot of things wrong. I think, you know, we we probably had an attitude of like, it's our baby, don't call it ugly. And so, you know, because of that, you know, it was very me too business, you know, where it's like, you know, everyone kind of, you know, sort of came in, same, you know, graduate program, same L&D, you know, you know, Henry's just on 500 grand a month. You can do it too, you know, just do what he does. And, you know, I think that, you know, got us to a certain point. But I don't think we, I think because we were very young, felt we'd the Midas touch. We probably weren't in listening mode. We were in talking mode for quite a long time. And it's probably only looking back that we've realized there's probably quite a lot of missed opportunities there. But, you know, irrespective, sold the brand in 2012. And uh, we had some other brands around that that it made sense to exit at that point in time because they, you know, they probably worked best as an investor together. Um, so, you know, that was definitely a, 
probably and honestly probably as many loans from that as there was there was wins with Lucaslove healthcare really different uh experience so you know kind of fox was you know huge average fees you know yeah. high-end contingency bit of a bit of search uh Lucaslove healthcare was you know private nursing agency temp recruitment you know so there was common threads in that you know love your candidates love your temps but you know the operating model was you know, pulls apart. And, you know, Lucaslove Healthcare was probably a degree of right place, right time. Again, you know, we have definitely had uh, a very candidate short market, probably didn't have the quality of competition there are in other geographies, and just a really exceptional management team. And I guess that was the kind of point of difference between Kind of Fox and Lucaslove Healthcare. You know, Kind of Fox was we built it, it was our DNA. Lucaslove Healthcare was the DNA of, of two founders that, you know, I knew well and backed. And so, that was kind of quite a learn in terms of how do you manage that relationship to help them achieve what they get what they want to out of it. And that business actually, in the end, probably did, did a bit better in exit than, uh, you know, a larger contingency retained business. And um, so, you know, it, it eventually sold to, to better care capital. So like really different experiences, you know, one yeah, is you know, your own DNA, one is uh, sort of trying to help people get the most out of those. But I think sort of by 2013, I sort of felt like I, you know, built something myself and uh, with, with Nick, and you know, had a good result from it. Supported some other people to get the most out of their vision, and had a good result from it. And you know, the question was, you know, actually, could I sort of blend that by by getting involved and actually building an investment team that supports people? And it just felt like a pretty sensible move from there. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, so it's so co- a couple of things. So first thing that so just for context, so you mentioned the um, the business that acquired the healthcare brand. Was it this? What was it? The same company that bought the obviously that you sold to all the other no, brands? No, was it different, different deals with different people? Different transaction. Um, oh really? It, it sold a private equity business. Um, okay. And the uh, other businesses exit in effectively MBOs. So um, oh, yeah. really, really different uh, experience. Okay, so it's MBOs. Okay, cool. Because that was definitely one of my questions. So, okay, a couple of things that I think would just be interesting at this point. And maybe you could even, you could say, obviously share how you did it then, but also maybe share how things have happened more recently. But how did you go about finding these potential opportunities to get acquired or like did you speak to someone that then brokered your your business out to the market to people that could be interested did you have relationships with people that were at PE firms or these types of firms that you could potentially sell to like how did you go about actually even getting that opportunity like how proactive were you it differs by brand um you know I think it's about sort of understanding what are you trying to achieve so you know most recruitment transactions are uh, a glorified MBO, you know, so it can either okay. be founder driving, trying to help the management team that, you know, they've seeded and, and build a succession plan around them, try and access capital for them to move the business forward, but the founder oh, no. risks their position and leaves. But effectively, you know, that's managing an MBO. Um, it can be led by the management team who are approaching the owners of the business and saying, look, been a great journey to this point. Would you consider giving us the opportunity to buy you out, leverage up our position and, you know, build the business in line with our DNA, our, our ambitions? So, and then you get sort of like something like Lucas Love Healthcare, which is quite unusual where you get a management team that uh, managed to attract a buyer where they just get out really quickly and you know, move on and, uh, and sit in the sun for a bit. So, you know, that was quite an unusual transaction in that regard. And I'm definitely... You know, that was a bit of a, a beauty parade of speaking to potential private equity investors who felt that, you know, they could run the vehicle effectively. And yeah. so, you know, that was a 
an unusual process in that regard in terms of speed of exit. You know, where it's an MBO, it's kind of understanding like how do people's visions here align? Who wants to drive the process? How do you do it symbiotically? You know, quite often if it's a if it's an investor, you know, they'll probably want to drive that. You know, they'll want to go out and say, okay, we're going to talk to other people in the private equity community and talk about, you know, how we can move our position out whilst giving the management team a better opportunity to move forward with the mixture yeah. of equity and more debt in the business to be able to grow more quickly. If it's founder-led, then they're probably approaching the, and oh, sorry, it's management team-led, they're approaching the investor and saying, you know, we would like that opportunity. And then it's actually, can everyone agree something that they think is, is, is workable with? So, but ultimately, you know, most recruitment, uh, transactions are a a sort of you know a, 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 a ribbon MBO in some way because that, that was just that was just going to be my sort of next question really as we go into this like in your experience in the last I don't know five or so years like how realistic is it for a recruitment business to achieve that exit is it is it actually a lot more common that, that you see now that it's actually like you just said that yeah that sort of glorified MBO and I definitely have more questions on that. But like from your yeah. from your lens, like in the last, because obviously I feel like the more and more I speak to people like yourself and other people in this podcast, I think maybe in, in the last maybe 10 years ago, you might have been like, right, I'm starting a recruitment business because I want to start with it and I'm going to exit it, right? But then how yeah. many people actually actually achieve that? But like how much of that is actually going on in terms of it being sold to a P firm or whatever? Is it typically more the MBO side that you typically see more often? This podcast is proudly partnered with Vincere, who are more than just a recruitment CRM. They are the recruitment operating system. Now, I can continue to tell you how great this product is and how great Vincere's operating system is, but I think what's always best is to hear from Vincere's customers on how it's impacted their recruitment business. So, Here's a very quick snippet from a recent conversation we had on this podcast with Steve Thompson from Forward Roll, who spoke about how Vincere has enabled to grow his recruitment business. And if you want a no pressure demo on Vincere, how it could impact your recruitment business, then make sure that you use the link in the show notes. And because you listen to this podcast, you will get exclusive savings. If you haven't checked it out already, Make sure you do. Let's have a listen to what Steve had to say. We were the first medium-sized customer of Vincere a couple of years ago and did a lot of work with them on their product roadmap for the UK. Um, got a really lovely partnership with, with them as a business. We chose it because it's an incredibly intuitive tool. Um, it's incredibly powerful. And, and that's really weaponized our staff, I think. Um, so, yeah, Vincere, I think it's definitely helped with our, with our growth. If the question is, you know, is it very easy to get an exit? The answer is it's really easy to get an exit. <laughs> Depends what you want for it. If the, uh, you know, basically you know, pass the business to your number two for a quid, got an exit. Um, so, <laughs> you know, I, 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 you know, I think the, que- the question is, you know, if you're trying to sell a business to a private equity firm, you know, is that easy? No, it's not. If it was, everyone would be doing it. And, uh, you know, it doesn't happen that often, you know? That's, um, yeah, that's what I mean, yeah. It's really important to understand, like, what is, you know, if you're thinking about my aim is to build a business that could sell to private equity, I think you need to push forward and say, well, actually, is that true? Do I, Is that what I really want? Because yeah. if it's what I really want, I'm probably going to have to build a business that would be very different. The touch, feel, look of it, process of, be very different. I was just building it to be proud of the business that I own, have a nice life, make some money, you know, have the car, the house, whatever I yeah, want. Yeah. You know? And everything that you do 
as early as possible needs to be driven towards presenting your business in best possible light. And so, you know, understanding, you know, the investor mentality is pretty important in that. So, you know, if you sort of step back and maybe look from an investor's lens, you know, I run a private equity business and, you know, first up, you know, it's, uh, I've raised a lot of money. It's not really my own money. You know, need to demonstrate that I can uh, invest that money well. Part of giving people confidence to invest in a private equity firm is saying that there's certain parameters that, you know, we will or won't invest in. And so, you know, te- one of that tends to be like, what's, you know, there's a certain level of EBITDA that beneath that we don't touch because that, you know, investors, the people that are giving them capital probably feel like that that's a risk profile we don't really like. Yeah. So it's really important to understand, like, you know, with your, if you're looking at speaking to private equity, you know, what are the parameters that they're looking for? What are the parameters they've raised capital from? Because if you don't fit into that, there's no point really in having a conversation yet, you know? So in terms of trying to get an exit in the, in the short term. So, you know, and if you think about, you know, an investor, like really simply put, if I'm buying a bit of art, I kind of want to put that on my wall, look at it, you know, get a couple of mates on and say, oh, do you like that? And then certainly five or 10 years time, sell it at a profit without having to do much. If I'm buying a classic car, pretty similar, drive occasionally, turn up, you know, goes up in value, sell it. You know, I don't really want to have to be the mechanic. I don't really want to have to rebuild it every six months. So if you're Asking for premium price from private equity firm, you know, you need to demonstrate to them that this is a business that will continue to grow in your absence. Yeah, it's an asset that's going to rise in value. Now, no private equity firm thinks they're that lucky. You know, they they know that they're going to have to work hard with management to get best possible result. But they want to believe that what they're buying is you know what they think they're buying, which is a business that's going to continue to grow at some pace without their input. And so. You know, you need to be able to demonstrate that the business you're in hasn't capped out a market. There's other market opportunities that you continue, that you can continue to attract, train, and retain staff post the transaction too. You know, you need to demonstrate that you've invested in the business enough in the last couple of years for it to continue to grow. And actually, what you haven't been doing in the last couple of years is not investing in the business to make it look as profitable. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Growth in it for the next person. So yeah. I think market really, really matters. Were you what value proposition? your business has, you know, it's kind of back to, I'll give you a regular example, actually. I spoke to a, a private equity investor in the US who called me up maybe five years ago after a, a well-known transaction, which was, you know, the Frank Group transaction. And, you know, when we were sort of having a chat about sort of why, you know, why, why buy Newcastle, we should invested in you know, Spotify, Airbnb, different things. One of the things that came to those actually saw huge value in talent pools. So, talent you know, pools. actually the uh, candidate pools that the business had built you know, was actually seen as actually that network, that ability to network into that qualified talent pool, the size and scale of the talent pool, you know, we just see tremendous value in that because we're really long on Microsoft, we're really long in Salesforce. And so that that ability to build a talent pool, which is probably bigger than anyone else's in the space, the investor saw a huge amount of value in that, took a huge amount of comfort and safety in that. And so, you know, it's about understanding what an investor wants to see, why they think your business has a USP, why they think it's going to continue to grow. And and one of the, you know, challenges that has, you know, and one of the things I think it's important for recruitment founders or entrepreneurs to understand is that, you know, the last 20 years has some really impressive successes of private equity investing in recruitment business and continuing to grow and develop and make money. You know, and Frank Group's a really good example. You know, Living Bridge had invested in before that and did incredibly well from helping the founders build build the business and move it forward. That's just a couple of really good private equity transaction. 
But there's also so many private equity firms have examples of, you know, investments they've made in recruitment firms which haven't panned out. Yeah. Um, and it's not an asset heavy business. You know, your your assets, your people, are they, you know, arrive at nine, leave five every day. You know, it's not like you own a fleet of cars that, you know, you're, mm. you know, or, or, or a tech stack that you could, you know, a proprietary tech that you could sell to someone else. So investors need to have a lot of confidence that the management team, that if, if there's people leaving the business as part of the transaction, that's not going to derail the business from a culture perspective. And you need to have a lot of confidence that the management team that are staying at the other side of a transaction have the ability and capability to continue to grow the business. I, I think fundamentally giving investors that confidence and assurity is is really is really important and then market yeah what are the key kpis that i need to really have a grasp of that ryan the investor is going to want to see and know so let's say that we've got the management team that people part we've got that right and i do feel like that is why the whole like mbo thing is more common because i've spoke to so many recruitment leaders who are on that path to wanting to exit and they lose their purpose because yeah. they're like, I want to do deals. I want, I, want, I miss that, right? So then, so I understand that people about why it's so important. So if I have got that nailed, I'm, I'm confident in my management team. I've got my exit plan. I feel like it's not going to be reliant on me. What are the like key, key KPIs, metrics, parameters that I need to really demonstrate and showcase to yeah. show that we've got great assets and it's a strong okay. place to be invested in? I guess two two things that. Firstly, I'd sort of, you know, if you genuinely are talking to me, it was like along the way, I feel a bit lost because I'm starting to lose that, you know, deal junkie mentality. Yeah. You, know, you just need to reframe that and make that, you know, the deals you do is about attracting the best people to come join your business. You know, that's your role. Yeah, uh, fair, nice. That's a sales journey or about going out to back other people or acquire other businesses. You know, that's your job now. It's just changed. You know, it's not clients and candidates. I think in terms of, you know, what are the key metrics that somebody you know, should be mindful of or, or what, what should they be trying to present. It does depend a little bit on market. You know, search is going to be very different to, uh, you know, logistics temp business. But, you know, broadly, you know, you need, to, it's, you need to be able to demonstrate trend. So, you know, what is my trend on sales? What's my trend in net fee income? And what's my trend in EBITDA? You know, how's that conversion looking and changing along the way? You know, and am I continuing to invest to achieve that? What's my productivity per head? How's that tracking? What's my headcount? How's that tracking? How can I demonstrate that's repeatable? And we're going to maintain or grow that productivity per head. What's my margins? You know, are my margins defensible? Are they growing as we get better? Or actually, in order to maintain growth, are we having to accept lower margins along the way to get more uh, sort of wholesale business? Investors don't like margins going down because they feel like they're just going to have to keep working harder a little bit every year to get the yeah. business to still. So, you know, margins matter. Debt for profile of the business is important. You know, I think people need to understand that too. If you're all private equity investors will want to get someone else in beside them to help finance the, the deal. And, um, you know, so you, if your business is, has a very poor balance sheet, is strewn with debt, you know, that is going to come off your, you know, enterprise value to what you actually yeah. get. So, you know, businesses will look at that. How much more debt can the business hold against its, its EBITDA? It's important. Uh, debt it is matter you know do clients pay important the business will also want to see that or a private equity investor will also want to see that there is you know i think one of the big things a lot of private equity firms look at speed competency so, speed you know, to what, sorry competency. Speed competency and one of the things i look at i see a lot asked is you know people are say so you've got you know 50 fee owners and you know quite often when you actually look at a 50 fee owner or 100 fee owner business so say you know our average productivity is 
you know, average twelve thousand pounds, impressive twenty thousand pounds, whatever it may be. And that, that's factually correct. You know, there's a hundred people, the average is the average is twenty. But actually, if you look at the median, you know, it's actually fourteen because you know, there's kind of 10 guys producing 50% of the revenue. Right. And the investor won't want to see that. You know, what they actually really want to understand is what what does the average person, not what's the average, you know, so what's not the average number someone achieves, is actually what does the average person in this business mm. achieve? And so, you know, that's really important because an investor will look at that and think there's a lot of key man risk in that. Mm. And you can't demonstrate to me that you can get sort of 50, 60, 70% of your people to a certain level. You can only actually demonstrate that you can get 20%. Get- 20 percent, yeah that's I, think, I think that's really important to be mindful of that because it will it'll come up you know so i think there are the key things that you know an investor will will want to see like what's the trend lines and those things yeah from your experience what should be recruitment business owners what's like the i guess first major milestone with their ebitda for them to even be like okay maybe we need to actually like if their goal is to achieve some sort of exit right? Or transaction. I know you said earlier, like if it's below a certain thing that it probably won't even be looked at. So I'm just curious as to like what you typically see that EBITDA being at. I can answer that specific to private equity because, you know, along the way, if you're thinking about sort of raising money or some kind of transaction, like at any point, you can go to a bank, raise some money. And, you know, at any point, you can get maybe an angel investor or someone will put some money in along the way because they believe in you and your your product and your vision. So I think, you know, it's very, the the reality is that, you know, from your first idea, you know, that I'm going to, you know, perhaps go and set up my own brand to £100,000 of profit to 300 to 400, you know, at all points you have, options of you know either taking you know debt into the business or debt equity mix whatever it may be so you know i don't think that there is a hard and fast rule that someone needs to get to a certain level before they consider you know should this just be the meat show but i think you know if you're thinking about a private equity transaction it kind of goes back to what they raised capital on and you know one million ebit is a pretty sort of you know well-known floor kind of low market private equity and so one to three million ebit to low market, you know, mid market from there. And then sort of, you know, you get sort of like a, the, the huge there, uh, okay. as well that would touch anything is probably less than 10. So you, you know, you kind of need to know your audience and, and part of the reason that private equity firms just aren't, aren't really there and stuff that's less than a million EBITDA is that really twofold. It probably feels like there's still a bit of key man risk at that point. You know, if you apply yeah. sensitivity to sales, that'll probably fall down quite quickly. But the second reason is that they find it hard to bank it. They find it hard to get, you know, an HSBC or another high street bank to come in beside them and put that to in fund it, yeah. less than that level. So, you know, it's sort of understanding that you know the question is you know if you can get to a million yourself you know maybe you can get to two or three before you need to go and have that conversation because it's only going to get easier again higher level of EBITDA you have believe it or not the more investors there are in the market and so uh, at a higher multiple where you you know get a better result so you know but really private equity sort of millions probably mark is it yeah fair enough and what what has been the typical multiple that people have been able to achieve in your career so, like what that you've seen really, so far really is it really varied yeah. okay fair enough no, it is very varied it's varied by geography it's varied by sector uh, it's varied by scale of business and, and actually it's varied by just timing you know um yeah. you, you know at the right point in the cycle and there's you know three or four private equity businesses interested in the staffing sector, probably going to slightly better multiple than you're right at the top uh-huh. of the market. And they're thinking, you know, probably apply this kind of this, there's no one else at it. So, you know, I think timing and scale are probably the two things which impact multiple the most. In terms of, you know, what's realistic, you know, I think if you're looking to get any kind of exit multiple, really, it grows quite quickly from maybe three to four million EBITDA. So, 
that's kind of age old, you know, we need to be 70% contract, 30% perm to get, you know, the right mix of multiple. I'm yeah. not sure that's as real as it, as it once was. Um, I think people are, uh, investors probably look at quality of earnings a little bit more, uh, you know, a little bit more sort of ruthlessly than they do the mix of earnings these days. Um, but once you get to three or four million EBITDA, I mean, you, you really shouldn't be doing anything at less than sort of six to eight times. You know, once you get to 10 million EBITDA, you definitely shouldn't be doing anything less than 10. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for sharing that. So final point on this, because you've mentioned quite a few things from headcount, EBITDA, NFI, time to competency. What would end up being, from your point of view, like the most valuable part of the business out of interest? Like if we were to zoom in on like maybe one particular area that could impact other things in the recruitment business, what would you say is the most valuable part of the bit of a recruitment business, would you say, if we were to really get it right? This podcast is proudly partnered with Sourcebreaker, who are changing the way recruiters work. This week, I just want to tell you or continue to tell you about the fantastic opportunities Sourcebreaker currently have within their organization. So if you don't know, Sourcebreaker is widely used across the industry. You have companies like Hayes, S3, Austin Fraser, Premier Group, G2V, Harvey Nash, Next Ventures, so many great recruitment brands use Sourcebreaker and absolutely love it. So I want to tell you about the opportunities they currently have at their business. And you're going to very quickly hear from a chap called Joshua Dowling-Kennedy, who went from working in recruitment to working at Sourcebreaker for the last five years, progressing from sales executive to now head of field sales. I spoke to him about his journey so far and why he would recommend recruiters who are potentially open to transferring their skills to tech sales and what that has been like and why some of you may be open to considering that opportunity. So here's Josh. And if you like what you had to say, if you are interested, then click the link in the show notes to check out some of Sourcebreaker's latest job opportunities. But also if you want to directly connect with Josh, then do that on LinkedIn. So it's otherwise um, an unbelievable place to work. It's, you know, the, the culture and the people that are just unbelievable. You know, it's a really high performance culture, but, you know, everybody is, you know, ultimately mates. The guys who run the business, you know, treat us really well. Loads of incentives. We go out all the time, um, lunch clubs, socials, parties. But, you know, the, the crux of it is, you know, the day-to-day is just really fun, exciting, and, yeah, one of the best cultures, I think, out there. And I think that right now is probably one of the best times to join the business, just purely because... You know, we're back to, to high growth, we're going to be opening offices elsewhere. You know, some of the new developments on the on the platform are going to be absolutely outrageous. So, yeah, it's a phenomenal business, an unbelievable time to join. Looks like the future is going to be um, amazing with the business. Marketing leadership, you know, when we're looking at making an investment, you know, it's about really getting to know the management team being, you know, really open about our our relationships, our interests, or wants and you know desires aligned here. And you know, fundamentally, you're backing the leader, ideally, um, to be able to execute on you know what he says his vision is and trying to help him do that. So, you know, as an investor, leader is huge. I mean, yeah, absolutely huge. And you know, the leader is the point of spirit. And yeah. so, you know, you've got to believe that the leader has it in the locker to continue to grow and develop and, and thrive. And, uh, and you know, as the business grows, but you also need to be able to believe that they've got a survival mentality too, if things get tough, you know? So, 
And they're two very different things, you know. Um, last year, difficult year for a lot of people, right? And, um, yeah. and really, really interesting. The people that, you know, survived in that market and, you know, managed to keep the team together, get through, aren't necessarily the same people that would really thrive in the best market. You know, mm. so ideally you're looking for somebody that, you know, can, you know, go and survive to thrive, but if they need to, can survive and don't, you know, don't have a wishbone where the backbone should be. Leadership, huge. Um, and then I think after that, you know, in terms of function, we've got a DD tool called Arteus that we use when we're looking, uh, it's called a scores business out of 360 uh, points. And we're really trying to say, where's the areas of improvement? If we invested, you know, where can we help? Um, and I think the sort of functions that we, you know, would probably be most interested in and place a lot of value in probably marketing and L&D. Marketing you know, and L&D, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think as an investor, a finance function is something that, you know, uh, you know, provided it's fit for purpose, you know, you can add value to. Governance, HR, provided they're fit for purpose, you know, you can add value to. You know, talent attraction, L&D and marketing. I mean, I think that they're really, really aligned to the DNA of the business. You know, so what you really look at is like, how are those? I mean, are they good? Are they getting a lot of value from marketing? You know, are they positioning the business well? What revenue do they generate from marketing clients' accounts? Right? Is that repeatable? What's the time the traction process like? What's the retention like? You know, how do they onboard? How do they induct? You know, is that yeah. people? And then L and D. You know, like what is if you strip away the kind of management of the people we're talking to every day? You know, who's coming through? And how's the business helping them come through? Do they have a good track record of doing that? And so I think, like by function. You know, talent traction, L&D and marketing would be something that, you know, we would be uh, really encouraged if we saw those those operating well. Yeah. Okay, cool. So let's sort of take this into the direction of, yeah, maybe a bit more down the sort of MBO route and a few a few other questions that, that I have for you. But um, th- this question comes up a lot, right? Because I do feel like a lot, a lot of growing recruitment leaders and agencies like do really find it hard to have that layer underneath them or uh, cultivate those leaders within the business. In the typical businesses that you sort of see do this well, or a business that you think is in a really strong position, what does the typical like org chart look like from a leadership perspective? How do recruitment businesses typically have their sort of management layer within the business and how does it typically operate just out of interest? Like what are the typical org charts that you see? I just completely changes by, oh, yeah, by, fair enough. by scale. Um, you know, I'd expect it to look very different at 300 people than 30, you know, in terms yeah, of, of course. what the CEO job is. I think like the big, the big thing for me is actually like, sort of going back to leadership fits into, well, who are you going to have report into when, you know, that's kind of about a leader understanding what job is and that should change as the business grows. So, you know, I think most people can relate to when they set up a business, you know, your job is literally everything, you know, and, <laughs> and sort of, sort of all of the above. And, you know, you're sort of struggling to, uh, find the time to speak to clients and candidates because you're sending out an invoice and you're interviewing somebody to come and join the business and then you're drawing up this contract and then you're talking about your great L&D program while you write the first module the day before you give it to the morning <laughs> and that stuff. You know? So, so you know, and as time changes, you know, CEO needs to go, well, actually, how do I, in the next 12 months, as I'm writing my business plan for that year, you know, how do I impact this business best and what do I need to let go? And I think, you know, one of the things which really slows uh, a business growth is, if you kind of think about the mentality of a recruiter, it's, you know, good recruiters are quite controlling by nature. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, so you have to be, you know, I've got a candidate here, I've got clients here, you know, my job's to influence that process, you know, get them to successfully date. And so, you know, I'm trying to manage that process, control that process to get a positive outcome. I'm God, I can do it, you know, I can make everything happen. <laughs> I, you know, I can, I'm the best influencer, et cetera. And so, you know, your mentality as you come up through recruitment is very control, control, control. Don't leave anything to chance. Look around corners. 
And actually, as you start to build a business, you know, that slows the business down. You know, if you try and be God and you're trying to come up with a solution for everything, you're not trusting people, you're not bringing the best people in, listening to them, then actually it becomes very, very difficult to run a business because you end up in that place of you're just, there's too much to control. Mm. And you actually end up doing everything averagely, stepping at everyone's toes and not doing anything well, because actually you're not prepared to let go and bring in people who know more than you about a function who can do it better, and actually learn how to have a good relationship and manage that person by listening. And, you know, I think that slows down a lot of recruitment businesses where they never get to that big old chart because actually the founder couldn't let anything go. They feel uncomfortable letting anything go. And, you know, part of that is mentality, but part of that is also, you know, what it's comfort. And because if I'm a recruiter, I've done that job. So actually, I find it quite easy, you know, yeah, to bring true. someone else to do it or manage someone else to do it because I can relate. I've done it. You know, I think recruiters quite often in the building a business, they, they really struggle to let go because they actually struggle to manage other functions because they've never done, really done it themselves or certainly haven't done it to the, to the level yeah, or really experience point. of the person to bring you into it. And so, you know, I think that kind of letting go and trusting, attracting the best people and then creating a framework where they can influence the business to enable you to move forward and focus on where you can impact the business best, you know, could get you to a point where you've got a really great org chart, which is effectively, you know, I've got my key directors, whether it's by geography or division that, you know, reporting to me and sales and how they're doing you know, I've got my head of marketing here, which is reporting on how he's working or she's working with key stakeholders to drive value. I've got HR and L&D who are talking about, you know, actually what's our, where's, where's the performance improvement opportunities? What do we need to get better? You know, I've got talent attraction, which is making sure that we can repeat this process and come into it. And, you know, those people that you should be, uh, have around you in a little chart probably quite close to you. You know, yeah. uh, I think as a business grows, then you, there's a probably strategy point, isn't there? And, you know, a lot of businesses will look to either have somebody focus a strategy or bring in a, a sort of chief strategy officer, which helps you sort of tie together all of those to achieve your goals. Sure, sure. But I think they're the sort of like, if I was looking at an old chart, that's kind of broadly what you'd Yeah, yeah, no, that's great. Thank you. I think you, I feel like you just sort of answered this, but I want to ask it because as I'm sure you're well aware, a huge portion of the UK recruitment industry is very much made up of micro small businesses, right? Under 10 heads, 20 heads or whatever. Now I'd like to think even that's a high percentage from the conversations that I have, I don't know if you'd agree. I would, I would think that let's say it's 80% of the UK recruitment market. I would, I'd probably like to say at least half or maybe even three quarters of those recruitment leaders actually want it to be bigger than it is right? Or have motivations to do that. Not everyone wants a 20, 30, 40 person business, but I would, I do feel like they have aspirations, they have big goals, but because of various things, one of them being what you just shared, they may never actually get there. So a real common question I always get in my inbox for for me to ask the people that have breaking through those sort of really difficult barriers of like getting over 30 heads, getting over 20 heads or 40 heads. So that, that was the question really. And I feel like you may have answered it a bit, but I guess the question is for any founders listening to this who are at that 20 person stage that do have aspirations, they've got a vision that they want it to be bigger. Like what, what other advice would you give them to, to break through that milestone, that barrier that is maybe, yeah, things that may be preventing them from getting past it out of interest. Is there anything else yeah. on that? Yeah, sure. Churn kills you. Absolutely throttles you. Yeah, yeah. I, Obviously I, churn so, for your own business. Like, as yeah, talent, so, you, know, yeah. Is, you, see, you see a lot of businesses where, you know, they... Start off with one or two people, go to five or six, back to three, yeah. up to seven, yeah, down yeah, yeah. To five, up to nine, back to two, back to six. And, you know, but my question would be like, what part do you have to play in that? Like, what are you learning from that? Because if yeah. it keeps happening, you know, I suspect the common thread you, 
And so, you know, and, and really why, why is it happening? Because the, you know, the founder isn't being disciplined enough on the, uh, you know, basically what's my vision of business and how do I stay disciplined to that? So if you are opportunistic in nature, this is really hard to execute on, easy advice to get, but, you know, <laughs> when you're opportunistic in nature, when you've got an early stage recruitment business, you know, we do software developers, but someone's just thrown up a project manager rule. Well, you know, it's like, yeah, we'll do that. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, all that's doing is taking you further away. That's not repeatable. The work you're doing this week isn't going to add value to next week. So like really try and make sure that every single person who touches your business, the work they're doing this week, you can extract value off in the future. And, you know, for me, that's about really staying tight in the market, tight in the talent pool, where, you know, the value that becomes value accretive and people that join the business at whatever point have a better chance of success in the future. So that's really huge for me. Like, don't be too opportunistic in who you're hiring. Or I know, I know, you know, I know we're sort of doing software developers, but Jeff's a great accountancy and finance recruiter. And I've worked with him before and I really trust yeah, him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Unless you're going to bring him in to do software development recruitment, don't fucking hire him, you know? Like, yeah, that's yeah, what yeah. Instead of two businesses doing that. Don't make it too hard. And so, you know, try and stay ruthlessly focused in setting up one business, one specialism, one thing that you can become, have a USP at, create value in, be best, own it. The second you try and go too wide too early, you know, you're not actually, you know, of course people want to, as they grow the like, but actually that's a repeatable process. We've done it in one market. We're going to do it in another. You've nothing yeah. repeating if you're trying to do two or three markets at the start. And um, it very rarely works. And, you know, more often than not, you see it sort of distilled to one market several years later. So, you know, that'd be really strong advice to that. You know, the other thing is that don't hire and hope. And, you know, I see this like UK recruitment businesses specifically are not great at this. They tend to see headcount and success is inextricably linked. So, you know, if we can get another five people in, then we'd be 15, not 10. That distracts the 10 people you have from going from good to great. That's a really poor decision, you know, like try and get to great and then grow. Try and hire into desks that are warm where basically you're missing out on leads, missing out on opportunities if you don't hire. Yeah. Don't have, you know, lukewarm desks and think, well, if I hire this hero, he'll make it really warm. Because if you can't get the people you have performing, Diluting mm. that, diluting your time, your energy is only going to dilute performance. And so yeah. I think people try and grow too quickly. And it's back to that kind of, you know, you know, what's the average performance? What's the, the kind of medium performance? You know, quite often, you know, someone will be at six, eight or eight heads and they look at it and go, oh, brilliant. You know, we're doing 80 grand a month. That's all right. You know, we made 25 grand last month. And, you know, so probably we could hire another three or four people on the back of that. But actually the kind of 10 heads they have, only three of them are consistently performing. So whilst you are making money and whilst it kind of looks good in that little spreadsheet that you've done, the truth is most of your business aren't performing. So yeah. get them performing, then grow, make it repeatable. Can I, am I repeating what I did before to grow? And, you know, that is like really, like I can't give that counsel strongly enough. Stay tight. And, you know, and also like, and this is a pretty ruthless thing to say, but people hire too lazily. You know, like it is hard to hire people, you know, get good at it. You know, don't hire Bs hoping they'll become an A. You know, say, look, I'm an A. A's hire yeah, yeah. RCs. I'm going to hold out and interview hard, interview hard until I find somebody fucking great. And because I've really had to earn that hire, I'm going to really value that hire. I'm going to work with them so hard to get them working. And, you know, so like really high bar in talent attraction. You need to be clear on who you're looking for. And then you can't sort of settle for someone different or change your mind on that because just find it a bit easier. Yeah, so yeah, that's a really good point. Really, really strong on that. And then, you know, once people are in the business, you need to be honest with them. You know, like, actually, this is my expectation, you know, at this point in time in our journey. As we perform, my expectation is going to change, go up. But I do need you to do this. 
And if people don't, you've got to in and out quickly because it devalues your business to everyone else. If you're sitting with like three people who are really, really before me, but seven people are still sitting there aren't, like what does yeah. that say? And yeah, so, yeah, yeah. you know, you need to be able to make strong decisions to make sure that you're trying to create a core where everyone's exceptional. And if you look at, you know, businesses that I think obvious businesses that have been involved in, you know, any kind of transaction or event in the last number of years, you know, whether it's Frank Group, Fade and Spencer Ogden, whatever, the core is exceptional. Yeah, cool. So what I hear a lot of recruitment leaders struggle with is, yes, everything that you're saying, but and then understanding what their hiring triggers are. I feel like you're talking a bit about it there where you get your core people who are missing leads, they're missing out on opportunities and then try and get in rather than, as you said, I really like that instead of thinking, oh, if we got someone in, then they would probably do better or it'd be go from lukewarm to warm. I really like that. So I don't know, is there science behind hiring triggers? Because I feel like a lot of people struggle with that. Like you yeah, just said. I think there's a few things. So I think you know, try and so don't do it by your overall business. You know, so you know if you are at 15 people and you've got sort of two teams, you know, don't because you're at sort of 15 grand per head. Don't just think we're hiring everywhere. You know, if one team's at 20 and one team's at 10, hire into the one that's 20. Don't try yeah. and get more 10 to 20. That's you know, it's like follow <laughs> follow what's working, and you'd be really surprised that actually a lot of people don't follow us because they want to win everywhere. And it's just yeah. far quicker to follow what wins and uh, and try and get it to critical mass. So, you know, I think that's important to separate out so you can look at it. Um, I think, you know, it's, it's when your business is relatively small, average productivity can be a real red herring. You know, you do really want to look at it. If I stripped out the top two or three people, where everyone else? What's the average there? You know, if that's, you know, at a level which is exciting, you should probably be hiring. Um, but if it's not, it's only the top two or three that make it look exciting. I, you know, I try and get, get the rest up, like the tail up. That's pretty, pretty important. And then actually the other thing is, you know, speed to competency. So, you know, that's something I really try and track early in a business because it should get better. And if it's yeah. not getting better, I would be concerned if that's trending the wrong way. So, you know, if when you were five people and you're all working really tightly together, you know, you hired a junior or an experienced hire and, you know, within three weeks, they'd interviewed within six weeks, they made the first place. And that was pretty consistent, but that's not three months. And, you know, I'd be starting to look at that and go, should we be hiring? Or do we have something that we need to address here? Because speed of companies is slowed down before we are, because we're not yeah. giving the best chance of success when they when they arrive. So they're the other things that I would be looking at. I love the speed of competency. I, re- I really like that. So, right, final question, and then let, let's sort of finish this up with just really focusing on attempting ventures, smart people, smart markets, because I'm really curious about this. So the, the final um, point on this, because I do get this a lot, and various reasons why I think people struggle with this is don't know how to find people that haven't had the best experiences with people. But the question is that I get a lot of the time, which I want your thoughts on is like all of these things that we spoke about in the last 45 minutes, obviously could potentially be easier or you would make less mistakes if you were working with someone or had some sort of mentor, NED to help you ride this journey. And I've seen you talk about that. Uh, I think one of the, your old videos of recruiting entrepreneur, whereas you're like, look, if I had access or help, I probably would have achieved an even better multiple or, or got there quicker, right? Yeah. So I know a lot of people want like that sort of help. As I said, a few different reasons why they don't end up. But like, I don't know, how can how can people listen to this, find credible NEDs and mentors, like how to approach them, how to find them? What What's your advice on that? It's so situational. Um, I've got a lot of thoughts on it. You know, I guess the irony of, you know, uh, particularly early stage investors is, you know, they're probably looking to invest in someone that doesn't really need investment to do well. 
you know, quite often the very best people don't really believe they need the investment or the help because, you know, everything they've done has worked so far. Yeah. So, you know, actually getting, uh, you know, best people, best investors together early stage, you know, the likelihood of that can be quite slim. You know, investors need to uh, work, they need to conscious of that and, you know, work hard to make sure that, um, you know, visions are aligned. And I think, you know, recruitment entrepreneurs need to be, I need to really understand what taking investment means, you know, because you've got kind of, I can take investment or I can take some advice or I could be in a network, you know, you've got lots of different options as to how to get counsel to grow your business. So, you know, you need to be very, very clear on what you're looking for and why. And you also need to be clear, like, is it realistic? You know, because like investors want to work with management teams that are going to be, you know, like ruthlessly focused and trying to, you know, achieve their potential of building a business that is best in class of what it does. And so that honesty and relationship really matters. Um, I think there are, you know, if you look around the market, you know, there, there's probably quite a negative, you know, connotation about the idea of recruitment investment. And because you tend to sort of hear, like in anything, you know, where it hasn't worked out, it's quite yeah. a loud voice. So, same, same with NEDs as well. I always hear it like they just don't really do much, not very proactive, just sit on a board meeting every quarter, charge 500, 700 quid a month. Yeah, but, you know, my question would be, well, what's your part to play in that? And what part do yeah, you fair. have in that? Because, yeah. you know, if you're not driving value from an NED and if you're not listening to the advice <laughs> or you're not <laughs> making a decision early and saying, you're not for me, you know, war stories getting a bit boring, you know, I've learned 80% of what I'm going to in the first 20% of the time and you let that go for another year or two years and start moaning about the NED. I mean, I actually think yeah, it's that's moral, you know? And so you've got to be selective. And I think one of the things I think is, is a common thread is that I think investees don't do enough DD and investors. Mm. And uh, quite often recruitment business founders don't do enough work to find the right NED and to do DD on the NED. Due diligence, yeah? Yeah, you mean. exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, so, and it's kind of very similar to like hiring great people to come work for you. And you've got to work really hard to find the right people to come and join yeah. your business. You have to work really hard to find the right NED. You know, you've got to kiss a few frogs. And, and it's exactly the same with an investor. You know, it's got to be the right mix. It's got to be the right mix of fuel to get it to ignite. So, you know, investment for investment's sake is a waste of time. It's about actual honesty of like, actually, you know, what are your goals? Can we help you do them? Do we understand what each other's roles are going to be in that? Are we happy to write that down? And then are we happy to be beholden to it? And, you know, we both have to work hard to deliver on it. You know, if that conversation isn't happening, probably shouldn't be taking investment. And, and, you know, I think it's, it's, you know, and, and I think founders need to understand they do have a, a part to play quite often where an investment falls over or it doesn't work out with an NED, like they were in the room too. And yeah. so, you know, I really counsel founders, whether it's an NED, whether it's an investor, you know, don't phone up all the people that are in their existing portfolio. Don't phone up the people that they're working with at the moment. Phone up the people they used to work with. You know, phone up the investments that didn't work, phone up the NED that you know did two years ago and say, look, you know, what were the positives, what were the negatives, what advice would you yeah. And because yeah, nice. you know, and an investor or an NED should want that really. You know, yeah. the relationships they have in the background, you know, with uh, perhaps businesses that that haven't scaled with them or you know, there's been a parting of ways. Like if that relationship still isn't a good one. You know, and it is impossible to say you'd probably take something to be said there. Yeah. It completely depends what point you're at. I don't think broadly you should look to take an NED too early in your business. I think, you know, it's got to be your DNA at the start 
you know, it's pretty obvious. The things I think you need to do to get a business to 10, stay focused, hire great people, focus on the, get your productivity there, stay in market, look at market. I think after that, it is a different journey to get to 10, 30. And I think I probably would be starting to look at maybe as kind of yeah. advice to someone who's done that reasonably recently or has worked with a business that's done that reasonably recently. Because, you know, there's kind of war stories for somebody who did it 25 years ago. I'm just not yeah, sure. Things change. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Anymore, yeah. You know? Even so, just in the last 18 months, 24 months. Really, just, it's, you know, it's yeah, yeah. got to really understand tech stack, really understand marketing, got to really understand, you know, because... You know, if you think about sort of recruitment broadly, you know, 40 years ago was I'm setting up a you know recruitment business in Reading and anyone a three mile radius, I'll find your job, you know. Now it's, you know, like so sort of Ryan Adams to signify, you know, I'm only going to look at Scala developers, but I'm going to do it globally, anywhere. We can do it anywhere because the technology enables us to do that. Like how yeah. recruitment business operates and models and how people, you know, remote working and how they fit together and work together and what methodologies you have to do that. Like that's really the point you're playing in now, you know, not... 500 people in one office, basically we'll do a bit of anything uh, 30, 40 years ago. So it ain't like that kind of currency of, of doing it recently matters for either an NED or investor. Yeah, love that. Just before I ask you the final question, we'll end on the Tents and Ventures piece. Just, just a quick sort of quick fire question, really, because I feel like in your journey, you would have seen um, a lot of different tools and tech that you'd invested in. Like, in your opinion, what are like the tools or tech that come to mind that like you would, as a recruitment business owner, you would not want to be living without out of interest? Yeah, I think we do a really good CRM matters. I mean, we're, we're, we use Fincheri across our businesses. Um, I'm impressed with the product. I think it's continuing to evolve. So I'd give it a thumbs up. I think, you know, you do need to make sure Fincheri about to do um, uh, some with one sales, which is going to enable... One up sales. Yeah, to um, yeah, yeah. you know get a better quality or, or of management data for the for the consultants too. I think that's probably something I encourage. Um, I think there's a great product. I think it's called Conquest, which enables uh, actual people to be able to look at their forward earnings and like kind of manage that and see it and understand oh, like, nice. what the going to be. Like, I think that's really empowering. So I think that's important. You know, LinkedIn's a pretty obvious one, but I think you know the yeah. the, the question using LinkedIn is how do I get into LinkedIn? You know, get the information off it and then live in my data. And you know, so I. You know, I think LinkedIn's kind of, you know, it is a necessity. But I think if you're, if you're, if your business is always on LinkedIn all day and at the expense Honorable. of its own CRM, you know, all you're really yeah. doing is mining the same database as, you know, X amount Everyone of recruiters yeah. out there. So, you know, it's about trying to get it off that with better quality of data that's on LinkedIn under your CRM, where you understand people's wants, needs, ambitions, dreams. Yeah, loads of different tools that can do that, isn't there? Yeah. Like Lusher, um, Lead IQ, loads of different things. Exactly. And you know, we personally won't won't put anything in our CRM unless we've, you know, spoken to the candidate length, have um, you know, and have personal details. If we don't if that if that hasn't happened and there aren't significant notes, keep working harder to have that conversation. Yeah, yeah. What you really want is your CRM to be your your Everest with really great data and be- better quality CRM than anywhere else. And um, one thing I would say, depending on which market you're in, you know, I think talent insights are a really valuable tool if you're in sort of search space. Um, yeah, I've heard then, that'd be really valuable with yeah, like, search. Bit, Projects. Yeah, really, really, really good tool. But you get you get out of it what you put into it, you know. Yeah. And so, but you know, we've definitely seen a lot of, of of wins from you know making sure that we work that data well. And so, you know, I think there are some of the key things. And obviously, yeah, just nice. Like, to the market back out of your CRM effectively and automate that. Love that. Tempting ventures. Where where are you going? You're as as I, I love the statement on your website. We back smart people in smart markets. Yeah, well, world I mean, recruitment brands. Where where are we taking Tempt and Ventures? Yeah, well, I think we've got we've got quite a few brands that are 
uh, either in the UK and US or operating in the US from the UK and operating in Germany from the UK. We think there's a great opportunity to to land and expand. So we expect to see that in the next year, just in process of finalizing investment in the US and in the scientific market, um, which we're really excited about, which we expect to grow quite quickly next year. We expect to, I've uh, got a brand we've invested in a search brand called Eastward, which we think is going to grow pretty quickly in New York. And we think it's a great opportunity to actually acquire other brands and alliance spaces beside it. So yeah, we expect we're to make quite a few investments in the next 12 months. It's been a good ride recently, but our priority at this point, you know, is to only invest in businesses that, you know, we really, really believe in. Because actually, we've got a great opportunity to invest time in the businesses that we've already invested in. And, you know, we're really excited about where they're going to go. Yeah, I love that. And then look, final question, obviously an industry that has obviously given you, obviously been a big part of your life has obviously given you a lot. Like what, if you could change the industry, what would you improve? That's a really hard question, right? I think, you know, <laughs> it's very easy to say, well, I, you know, I wish it was more honest industry. But I don't really, because actually all the people that aren't very honest and sort of actually probably give me a bit of a USP. So <laughs> like, I kind of feel like, you know, I should be telling you, I wish it was more transparent and more honest, but actually I think that's your opportunity, isn't it? Because it's not yeah. really like that. Yes, yeah, so I think that's important. There's a lot, a lot, lot of smoke and mirrors in the business. I think people need to uh, take a much more collaborative approach and more open approach. And I think that is happening with different networks, uh, you know, yeah. or in the market, which are, uh, they're certainly more collaborative and less combative than the market was historically. So I guess, you know, that's that's one thing. And then the second thing is just actually confidence. I think a lot of recruitment businesses actually just don't have the confidence to value the great service that they offer and might seem, you know, a bit harsh to say, but, you know, if I'm Deloitte or PwC, you know, I bring someone into my business, which is basically I photo recruiter, them, and then, you know, I happily will farm that person out to a client at a 300% margin <laughs> <laughs> because I've got the brand. It's really doing much different, you know, but recruiters sometimes, you know, struggle to have the strength to say, actually, we add a huge amount of value and, you know, we are confident in that and we don't feel, you know, in any way shame or guilty for the value that we add because, you know, the market in the next few years, the place recruiters have in that market is only going to grow in importance. The market, you know, most markets which are in any way technology facing are becoming more and more candidate short. And, you know, in the absence of a relationship or relationships with great recruiters, any business will struggle to grow, thrive, survive. And so, you know, we've got a really important part to play in the economy. And, you know, we need to sort of think like fundamentally people build businesses and we're here to try and match the best people with the best businesses. And so like, you know, we really do have a part to play and it's an important part. And I think, you know, businesses need a little bit more confident in how they uh, articulate that, but also how they charge for it. Because, yeah. you know, I think the recruitment, you know, the margin, probably spent the last 10 years with a little bit of margin erosion, you know, that should bring back the other way now. Yeah, love that. Ryan, been an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for joining uh, us on the podcast and really enjoyed that. Thanks a lot. Okay, man. Well done on making it to the very end of the episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I've done my very best to try and level up this podcast that will hopefully mean that you can take even more learnings from these conversations and apply it to your own recruitment career. Like always, if there are any particular topics that you would love me to cover with future guests, then please get in touch with me. The best place to reach me is on LinkedIn. Send me a message. What would you love me to cover with future guests? If you have enjoyed the podcast, then it would be amazing if you could leave a honest review in your favorite podcast streaming platform. That will simply mean that we're able to reach more people with this podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. And don't forget, 
to subscribe completely free on your favorite podcast streaming platforms. And we'll be back next week with a new episode of the Recruitment Mentors Podcast.